Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Throwback Book Stack. I am your host, Kelly. And I'm Emily. And this is a podcast where we go and we read the books that we read as kids, and we decide, are they still worth reading? What do they mean to us? What are they now? And this week, we read that C.S. Lewis classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was released in some year, in some time. Old time? <laughs> Copyright 1950. I would like to start discussing this book with a statement that is a spoiler for future books. And that statement is, fuck the last battle. What? <laughs> How dare you? I just want to throw that down on the table right now. Because I hate that book, and reading this book just reminds me how much I hated that book. I spent the whole time thinking, okay, my Google Home just went off when I said that. He agrees with me. Google Home, why would you do this to me? Okay, I don't want to get too much into it, because we did not read The Last Battle. I know, but, but it just reminded me how much uh, I hate that book the I entire time. I love that book. because How? Book, it is batshit crazy. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the awesome part. It's a terrible book. Who cares? It's so fun. All it does is also Susan gets so screwed over and Susan's the best. Oh, and I hate yeah. everyone in that book. They definitely, like, they really screw Susan over. But the rest of the book is awesome. I spend most of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, looking at all the points where Susan is obviously the best one in a situation and how much she's getting screwed by narrative. Okay, well, she's not my favorite, but she's better than Peter. I'll give you that. Yeah. Peter's the worst. Let's rank them. No, Edmund's <laughs> the worst. Peter's the second no, worst. I like Peter better than, or I like Edmund better than Peter. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, Lucy's my favorite, and then probably Edmund, and then Susan, and then Peter. I feel like Lucy gets... Okay, first off, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I feel like a lot of people have read this book, so y'all probably know what it's about, but just in case, summary. we're going to give you a summary. All right, so imagine this. It's the wartime. <laughs> England. Imagine. <laughs> so this book is really British. That's why I put that out there. Oh, it's super but British. It's and they a... did not do, like, the thing I actually appreciate is they didn't do any of the sort of editing that you'll see with American versions of the text. They didn't do any sort of changing of terminology to better suit American audiences. Yeah, maybe that was it. I was like, I don't know how to put this, but reading this is like reading a British accent. <laughs> I had to Google what a wireless is. Oh. It's a radio. Yeah, I figured that one out. But... <laughs> Uh, so it's like uh, World War II, and these four kids from London are sent to live with a distant relative, some great uncle in the country, because they did that with kids in London in World War II because of the Blitz. So they're at this like giant manor home and just like kind of running free, and there's four of them, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, that's age order. They one day are playing hide and seek, and Lucy goes into this old wardrobe, and instead of going to the back of it, she stumbles into another country. And she finds a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And then it's, like, snowy there. And then she makes friends with him. And then she comes back. He has some, like, breakdown about a witch. But she's like, it's fine. Everything's cool. I'm just gonna leave. Bye. And so she leaves and tells him about this other world. And they're like, you are crazy. Are you playing an imaginary game? And she's like, no, it's real. And they're all like, okay. And so, like, she gets in a huff, but, like, kind of understands that they don't believe her. And then a few days later, she goes back into this world, and her brother Edmund accidentally, like, follows her. And they are separated, though. Like, he sees her, but she, like, is far ahead. And he meets this woman who is the witch, but he doesn't know it. And she is like, you should, like, really extra nice and gives him things and, like, puts a little bit of a spell on him. And is basically like, you should come back. Bring all your brothers and sisters. You say there's four of you? Four, right? Four. Yeah, okay, four. Definitely four. <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, no, bring them all. No reason. Just come back. Okay, bye. And like sends them back into the real world. Lucy sees him and is so excited. Like, you found it too. Let's go tell the others. And then Edmund, for some reason, is like, 
nah, I'm going to pretend that I didn't go there and that you're still crazy. And so Lucy's like, this world is real. Edmund was there too. And Edmund's like, no, I wasn't. And they're all like, Lucy, we're worried. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they even like go so far as to like talk to their uncle about it. And their uncle, like, we'll come back to this conversation later, but their uncle is just straight up like, okay, well, you know that Lucy doesn't lie and Edmund does, so, I don't know, bros, sounds like you found another world, now stop <laughs> bugging me. <laughs> and so, finally, one day, like, circumstances happen that force them all to try and hide in there, and they all go into this world, and that's where the story kind of starts. But it's basically, they're in this world, Narnia, and it's under a curse by an evil queen who has put the whole world under a spell, so it's always winter, but never Christmas. Yeah, they that's the big deal. That. It's never Christmas. But no one and cares about Hanukkah. Come on. So they find out that this fawn that Lucy made friends with, Mr. Tumnus, has been kidnapped by the queen, and so they're, like, set out to rescue him, and there's giant talking animals that they meet up with that help them, and there's... Oh, God. There's not much to this plot. I don't know why I'm having such trouble with this. <laughs> yeah, they meet up with these beavers who are like, Mr. Tumnus was kidnapped by the evil queen. That's when they discover that Edmund has run away because he's gone to meet up with the queen and be like, I brought back my siblings. They're with the beavers. And she starts acting like more mean. She's not exactly being like, I'll give you everything you want. She's like, okay, where the fuck are your siblings? No, seriously, we gotta go get them. No, you're not riding my sled. <laughs> like... So the three kids who are together go out to, like, rescue Mr. Tumnus, and they find out there's this kind of, like, god creature in this world called Aslan? Is that Aslan, yes. Yeah, okay. Aslan? How is that? Really? I don't pronounce it that way in my head. <laughs> what do you, how do you pronounce it? Because I read these when I was a little kid, so it was, like, one of those, like, kind of, like, nonsense sounds I know, you make but there's up, been but so not... many movies of I've it. I've seen, well, I've seen, like, the weird PBS one once when I was little. I saw that one so many times as a kid. There's also the new Disney ones. I never saw those. I have them in the next room if you want to watch them. I'm good. Okay. I think if we're going to watch anything, we should watch the movie we started earlier. <laughs> so we also are watching, uh, we tried to start recording our podcast and instead started watching Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet because we found out Paul Rudd was in it. You guys, that movie is so good. So we might have to spend a lot of time discussing what role Paul Rudd would play in this book because we forgot Paul Rudd was in it and our mind is blown. Which is crazy. Did you guys remember that Paul Rudd is yeah. in that movie? Did you guys remember Paul Rudd's in Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet? Paul Rudd plays Paris. I know. Yeah. Mind-blowing. I know. So that's what we've been doing instead of recording this podcast today. Also, that movie is dope. Anyway. It's so good. Anyway, we read a book. Where was I? It wasn't as good as Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so Aslan exists, and he's like this lion god that sometimes He's appears. Jesus. He's Jesus little yeah, lion. Yeah, I mean, he is, obviously, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> so he... I don't know. A bunch of things happen, I guess. You find out the witch, like, turns people into stone and has, like, a stone garden in her castle. She's out hunting for the kids, and the kids are kind of hunting for Aslan. That part of the book is real boring, <laughs> to be honest. And so, finally, things start to happen, where they find Edmund back and manage to, like, kidnap him back. Oh, they also run into Santa, who gives them magical gifts. We're gonna talk about Santa. Yeah, he gives them all a magical gift. Peter gets a sword. Oh, we'll get into Santa. Just keep going, because okay. I have a lot of feelings on Santa in this text. <laughs> Great. So they find Edmund back, but then the witch comes and finds them all and is like, hey, if you remember the rules from the dawn of time, which is that all traitors belong to me. And so Aslan's like, yeah, you're right. That is the rule. Let's go talk. And so he goes and talks. And what he does is he makes a secret deal, but he doesn't tell the kids but Lucy and Susan, like, have a feeling of dread, so they, like, stalk him, basically, and see it happen. 
that like that night he goes to this giant stone altar. The stone table. Sure. <laughs> yes. That's what it's called. It is. There's um, capital letters and it's everything. Obviously an altar though. <laughs> and like comes to it and lets them like tie him up and shave his hair off and then kill him. And they're like, Oh my god, Aslan's dead and the witch is all like, I won and then they leave and just leave his body there. And the girls go up to it, and basically he, like, comes back to life. The girls go up to it and cry 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 until they have no more feelings to cry. And it talks about how they have cried themselves beyond a place of feeling. Because they're girls. Right. So he comes back to life, and he's like, what the witch forgot was that there are rules from beyond the dawn of time. Which are that if someone willingly, and who is innocent, volunteers to take a traitor's place, then death will undo itself. You know, that happens. Right. Loophole! Oh. <laughs> so then he's like, I'm back! And so he, like, runs around and stuff with the girls, and they go back, and apparently there was a battle happening this whole time. Just, like, BT dubs. It's mostly off-screen. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, like, the forces of the witches versus, like, all the animals and shit. And Peter and Edmund basically beat the queen. You forget. They bring an army with them because Aslan goes and turns every animal that was stone I into not stone. did forget about that. Yeah. So when Aslan comes back to life, he goes and finds all the animals the witch turned into stone and turns them back to life. So he brings his own army to yes, the party. Like he didn't them. he didn't show up at the part like at the the battle party without bringing anything. Like he yeah. knows it's rude. He brought a six pack of other animals. And with those extra forces, they defeat the queen and then the book like winds down really quickly. The children become the four kings and queens as was prophesied. Oh, I guess that was a prophecy that they mentioned at the beginning of the book. That was a prophecy. I kind of forgot about it. Yeah. Um, and so they, like, just stay there, and they're kings They and grow up and are and there for years. And then they, like, are grown-ups, and they're talking really weird. I have an issue with that, and I know it's a nitpicky thing, but, like, they're talking in this, like, weird, like, pseudo-Shakespearean way. Why did they start talking like that? Because no one else, not Aslan, not the witch, not any of the animals in the entire book talks like that. Well, I so they point out that like they started talking differently because they've been there so long and don't remember Earth life. And even though no one else talks like it, I think it was just C.S. Lewis trying to point out just how very different they were than they were earlier. So I think it was just super exaggerated royalty speak. Right. So they like go and they find this lamppost. Oh god, man! They're hunting I'm a white stag. So many things. They're hunting a white stag. There was stag. a lamppost in the beginning of the book when they first came into Narnia. They saw one. That's how they knew where the wardrobe was. They're yeah. like, it's by the lamppost. They go, and they're hunting, and they find this lamppost. Which like, is never explained. No, it's not. It's explained in a different book. That's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, this looks vaguely familiar, but I don't remember it because we've been here so long. And then they accidentally go through the wardrobe, and no time has passed, and they're back to being kids in their, like, school uniforms. And it's just like, that was a crazy adventure we had. Which, I also want to say <sighs> real fast, it always bugged me about how fucked up that must have been to have basically yes! lived an entire life. And then you're suddenly back to being a kid, but you have all the memories of, like, being an adult and, like, growing up. This fucks you up more than, like, big fucked up Tom Hanks. Like, yeah. this, okay, this is that thing that, like, as a kid I bought into because I'm like, oh, this checks out. And the older I get, the more horrible it seems. Yeah. These kids grew up, became adults, ruled a kingdom. They're now back in their child bodies in their child world with, like, all these memories of this other life they lived. After they've basically been promised, oh, yeah, you live here now. You're a king of... They were basically, like, ripped out of this place they grew to like 
become the power source for. I just, and they must be so fucked up. It makes me viscerally upset to think about how like emotionally traumatic that transition must have been. I'm gonna go ahead and spoil something for you, but don't worry because they all die young anyway. (laughs) I know that. Um, oh, by the way, like, we're probably last battle spoiling and spoiling the rest. Like, I don't even, it's it's hard to talk about the Narnia books without talking about some of the others. Yeah, especially because as a kid, I feel like I read them all in kind of a lump. <sighs> and like, this wasn't one I really liked as a child. Like, I read it, and it actually, it got me into the series because, I'm gonna back up and talk about just me. My sister went to London when I was younger, and it was like this big trip that she like saved up for, and there was like a group of people, it was a whole big thing. Uh, she brought back for me and my little brother a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Aww. that, like, I've never seen before or since. Like, it was obviously a British copy. And it was, like, really beautiful. It was bigger than a normal paperback and done with, like, all these illustrations. But not, like, shitty illustrations like are in this copy. <laughs> like, really nice ones and, like, really intricate and scrolls and stuff. I might have been a little abridged, but probably not much. Because this honestly isn't that long of a book. No. And it had a lot of writing in, like, really tiny font everywhere and, like, speech bubbles when there was dialogue and stuff. Oh, cool. It was really cool. It was basically, like, a super fancy graphic novel version. And me and my brother really loved it, not so much for the story, but because it was so, like, I mean, it sounds British, like, and it was from London, so it was kind of, like, exotic to us. It was like, oh, our book from this other country. Well, that's cool, given how much you loved reading as a kid. Like, Like, that, that's a really cool gift. So, like, this was never my favorite book. Once I had the 90s edition of all the books that were all, like, the different colors, this one was purple. Yeah. Like, I never really reread this one, because it wasn't my favorite story, Mm -hmm. but it did get me into, like, that series. On their other adventures, I will say, it made a lot more sense where they would go and, you know, time basically flows differently in Narnia. So they'd be gone for, like, you know, having an adventure for, like, three months and then go back. And I was like, that's not as fucked up as, like, yeah, that's fine. 60 years. I Yeah, my first one was actually Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, oh, that's a great one. Right? That's the one I really love. <laughs> I love that one. It's so good. I did, like, a diorama of it in class in third grade. Yeah, I, that was one, one I favorites. really loved. though. It's confusing reading that one when you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So that was the one that made me go read the full series. Um, And yeah, that one I loved and I really got into. And then I read the rest of the series and it was like, I really loved the rest of the series and really hated it at the same time. And those feelings have only intensified as I became an adult. So the other thing is like, I went on, uh, like my parents gave me some of C.S. Lewis's other stuff, like his Out of the Silent Planet series. But the thing you have to understand is, I was not raised in a religious household, like my mother's Irish Catholic, like my family's religious, but I was raised without literally any knowledge of religion. So the fact that this was a Christian allegory, literally no no idea. Did not know who Jesus was as a child when I read this. I went to Catholic school and I still didn't get it. Like, and he like, now that I'm an adult and I'm reading it, I'm like, he's really hitting this over the head with this like, look, Aslan died for you. Well, like, it gets wild when you read like the Paralandra in some of his other books too. And like, I started getting in a really weird place where like, I could identify there was some th- symbolism happening and something happening, but I couldn't put words to it because I didn't have the context or vocabulary to talk about it. But it just made me very stressed out. Aslan's, like, super Jesusing is wild. Like, I get it, but I also am like, as a religious allegory, I think you failed in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, like, it's almost just more, like, annoying when it comes up. Yeah. Because it's like, ugh. 
And, like, the last battle really gets into it. Like, the last battle gets That's why I hate the last battle. Seriously. It's just... No, I love it. It's bonkers. It's nuts. We really... We should just read it and talk about it. I cannot spend the whole of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe talking I know. about I'm the last I'm just so bitter battle, about Susan because I love Susan so much. This whole series, and I think it really sums it up in this book, goes between either being, like, crazy, where you're just like, what's happening? This is weird. Or it's just like, this is actually just kind of boring, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like... They spend a lot of time just hanging out and chatting with animals. Yeah. Of course, they're also like... Of course they're beavers, which is the word closest to believer. Oh, I never got that. What's really crazy, too, is that literally nothing throws these kids. Yeah. Like, like they find a magical world, and, like, literally the first thing that happens when the oldest brother finds out it actually real is real is he's just like, I'm sorry I doubted you, and, like, shakes her hand. And then they're all like, well, should we put on our jackets and go explore? <laughs> I mean, I kind of love that, though, because like, that's such, like, a childhood tr- experience and childhood trope. Like, I kind of love that it captures that desire we all have, that when you're trapped inside one day and playing, that you'll find, like, it made us all check our wardrobe. Like, that's what I love about this book, because it really gave that idea of a magical world can be anywhere, and you're, right. if you just turn a little bit to the left, it might be right there. And then it gets even, like, like, they meet the beaver, and it's like... He's, like, behind a tree being, like, psh, come over here. And at first they don't really realize it's him, and then they see him, and they're like, oh, I think that beaver wants to talk to us. Shall we go? Plus, like, when you're a kid, you always want to think you're going to be chill as hell when these things happen. You always want to think. They really are, though. They're just like, you could be excited about something. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I think we all want to believe that we'd be like, yeah, I buy into it. I mean, you're in a magic wardrobe at that point. Anything's on the table. I want to talk about, I want to talk about so many things. I have a problem with how much stuff happens off screen. Most of the main battle happens off screen. Yeah, a lot of it, especially at the end when they start to wrap up, they're like, and there was a battle happening while you guys were off with Aslan. Aslan has this big talk with Edmund that, like, turns Edmund around all off screen. Just like, oh, yeah, you don't need to know what happened. Like, yes, I do. I'm the reader. And this book is written like a fairy tale. I mean, it literally starts with, like, once there were four children. Like, it's very clear there is a narrator. The narrator is always very present. They'll be like, and now I'm sure you want to go back to what Edmund is doing. It makes you very aware all the time you're in a book. So when it tells me you don't need to know that information, I'm like, hey, narrator, I want that information. Don't judge. Don't be doing this to me. I think on a whole, this is changing the topic a little, but I just want to say that I think they're too hard on Edmund because they make a big deal about him being a traitor. And it's like, yeah, you are a little bit of a dick. And like, yeah, you did kind of backstab them a little, backstab them a little. But he also like the queen was the first person he met and she was nice to him. And he kind of has a good point that it's like, okay, so we both gone in this world and we both met one person and they both told us that they were the good guy. Yeah, it became obvious pretty fast that he was wrong. But he didn't know that when he... But the fact that he didn't bring that up with his siblings and didn't go, hey, so I did meet someone and I think she has a good case uh, for this weird rebel cell that is going against her. He kind of like weirdly muttered it once or twice, but they kind of ignored him. Like, I would kind of like to see a version of this book where he makes an eloquent case for his siblings to join the side of the Great Queen and they join her side. Right. Because I think that would be an interesting text. But I always thought they were a little harsh being like, he's the traitor one. Because it was like, okay, look, he made a bad choice. But to be fair, as soon as he realized that like, oh, I think maybe this lady is evil. He like, was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to try to get out of this situation. But like, everyone has that one family member. And they also, which I never noticed, because I always wondered why he was so fucking obsessed with this Turkish delight. But they do make a reference that I never got as a kid that, like, she enchants it. Mm-hmm. So that that's, like, all he can think about and all he wants. And, like, he would honestly keep eating it until he died if she gave him the chance. Like, yeah, I hadn't noticed that either as a kid. And then, yeah, also later on, one of the characters mentions, like, I know that he's seen the White Queen because he has that blank look in his eyes of someone that's eaten her her enchanted yeah. food. Yeah. 
And it was like, okay, so you was enchanted and you didn't like, I don't know. I was he like, was cursed. Be a little bit easier on him. He's a dick, but. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, maybe like two years ago, I had Turkish Delight for the first time. How was it? It was so great. And by that, I mean it was terrible. What but I was is delighted. It? So I went to my friend's house and him and his wife had it. And they're like, have you ever had Turkish Delight? And I was like, no. And I want to because of these books. And they're like, I know, right? It was terrible. What is it? I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a weird blocks of almost like jelly or gummy, but they're not a jelly or gummy, but they're like that kind of texture. What's the flavor? Well, you can get different flavors is oh. the thing. And so some of them are better than other, but a lot of them are really flowery. Like rose is a flavor. It's so overpowering for me. I was like, it's like eating perfume, but not in a good way. <laughs> I'm actually super into that. I always get like rose flavored gelato. You might like it then. I was like delighted that I finally got to have it. Because when I was a kid, I didn't even know what to picture. Yeah. Like, I think I was picturing maybe like pate or something. Like, and I don't know why. Because I've never had that as a kid either. But I think I was thinking it was like a meat product for some reason. Well, because like, they not don't explain candy. it all, which I appreciate. Like they assume, oh yes, British children are reading this and will surely know. Right? And like, I don't know, maybe it was more well known in like the 40s or whatever too. I was like, I don't, I, he's really into this like meat thing <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what it is it's wartime like, yeah you know but no it's a candy and it's a lot of times like bright colors and like not quite gummy but like definitely more towards that end of the spectrum than like a chocolate or something like okay but yeah i just remember the like rose one i was just like he like sold his soul for this this <laughs> <laughs> And my friend was like, I know, right? Yeah. You always wanted to have it because of the books, huh? I'm like, like, I would not sell my soul for Turkish Delight. Now a curly whirly, I might. Yeah, I was like, this was, I mean, I know that from then on it was enchanted. And so that's why he was so obsessed with it for the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. But like, why would that be the first thing you pick anyway, Edmund? <laughs> of all the things. Didn't they have like candy bars? I don't know. Pick a candy bar. Yeah. Some weird, like... A, the, the caramel dairy milk bars? It's yeah. It's like an old one, like Zagnut or something. I don't know. These are all American, too. I know. Uh, Yeah, like a Cadbury bar. It's really yeah. good. Yeah, they're really tasty. Turkish delight. <laughs> Can I talk about now how much I hate Santa? Yeah, talk about okay, Santa. Okay, so Santa's in this book. Mm -hmm. just, just take that moment for a second. They it's go through a wardrobe. It's a weird thing if you're trying to, like push christianity on people because like i know it's associated with christmas and like it is but it's not religious but they make really. Santa like it's sorry father christmas aka santa right. an ally of aslan and like one of aslan's like dudes like one of his minions so it basically sets up santa is like jesus's friend so santa rolls in which is crazy to me and i always like hated it as a kid because you're in this very fantasy book with talking animals and everything you don't expect to see santa if it had yeah. been some sort of animal, like Aslan is Lion Jesus, if you'd had Goat Santa or some sort of like creature that brings gifts, like if you had Krampus, which is obviously the opposite of Santa. <laughs> if you have some sort of holiday being, if you had some sort of holiday being that's not Santa, something very specifically in our minds as a human being. Yeah, I do have to say that as a kid, even it always kind of jarred me out, like being like, how does this thing from England end up sense. in this fantasy world? It was kind of weird in that sense, because everything else is so much like fantasy world, except for there's little little things like the girl beaver has a sewing machine, yeah. <laughs> which was like, what are you even sewing, girl? And they also call all the children, like they're always like, we've never seen a human before, and they call them sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Yeah. Santa shows up with gifts for the kids because, you know, Santa. 
what does Peter get? Peter gets a sword and like a shield. That's great. What does Susan get? Susan gets a bow and arrow and a horn, which, you know, the horn apparently calls in allies whenever you use it. That's very helpful. And a bow and arrow. Super helpful. You're going to battle. Except Peter doesn't get any sort of warnings. She gets a, you must use the bow only in great need, for I do not mean you to fight in the battle. I'm sorry. Santa, are you riding in the battle? What's it your business what she does? You give a bow that does not easily miss, but don't use it? I'm sorry. Lucy gets a small dagger and like a cordial that will help heal people that have been hurt. And also, she gets the warning of, the daggers defend yourself in great need, for you are also not to be in the battle. I'm sorry, sexist Santa. What's up? And so Lucy asks, like, why, sir? Said Lucy, I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. Good on you, Lucy. And Santa says, that is not the point, he said, but battles are ugly when women fight. And that's where I threw my Kindle across the room. Oh, uh, that's one thing I forgot about all C.S. Lewis's books is how terrible they are to women. Oh, yes, this was the reason I threw Paralander across the room as a child. Now I remember the source of that. Oh, yeah, battles are ugly when women fight. So, Peter, go go die if you want. But, but girls, no, don't fight. And they just spend so much time crying and just, I can't, I can't with this book. Yeah, that's why I think I like Lucy, because the spoilers... In other books where she's an adult and, like, a queen, she does go into battles as, like, an archer and stuff. Um, she's known as Lucy the Valiant. Yeah. This part was, like, weird. And, like, even as a little kid, I remember, like, maybe that's why. I did like all these series, but they were never, like, my total favorite. And I do think that's because there was a lot of, like, being shitty to women, basically. Yeah. Or, like, being, like, you can't do this. It's especially jarring as an adult to reread it because they force these two girls, though, to deal with a lot of shit where they're like, well, you can't fight because you can't handle it and we don't like girls fighting. But Lucy and uh, Susan have to deal with Aslan's corpse. Yeah. And then they have to deal with all the wounded on the battlefield. Yeah. Like, they have to go around and look at all these, like, gruesome things. But, like, God forbid you try to shoot people. Like, And Lucy's the first one to get there in the first place. Like, Lucy and Susan are dealing with all the shit. And it's like, oh, no, delicate girls, you can't do these things. Yeah. Fuck off, Santa. And even at the end, when they talk about how each of them grows up and they get into, like, oh, King Peter the Magnificent and he becomes tall and a great warrior. And Edmund becomes very grave and is great in councils. Edmund the Just. And when they talk about Lucy and Susan, they emphasize on both how people from around the kingdom and across the land want to marry them. And that's what they talk about as being important about them. Not about, like, their skills or things like that. It's just that they're beautiful and people want their hand in marriage. And I hate that. Yeah, there's a lot of, especially Susan, who, again, I'm just spoiling all the books. But, like, eventually it's like, Susan isn't allowed back in Narnia because she no longer can, like, see it. She convinces herself that these were all just imaginary games we played, and the only thing she cares about now is lipstick. You see it almost coming in some ways where you're like, well, Susan should be like, fuck you, Narnia, because in the other book, she's always being, like, carted around as, like, oh, maybe someone will marry her. She gets to be really good at archery, but it's always kind of been like, oh, but I'm not allowed to do it in battle. I can only do it as, like, a contest, and even then, I don't want to beat the people. Like, they really treat her shitty in Narnia, and then they're all like... She doesn't care about this anymore. And here's the other thing. That, okay, so at the end, when they go chasing the white stag, which is what takes them back into England, so they're on this hunt, and, like, they see this lamppost. And more, said Queen Lucy, for it will not go out of my mind that if we were to pass this post and lantern, either we shall find strange adventures or else some great change of our fortunes. And both Lucy and Peter and Edmund all want to, like, keep going forward and chase adventure. And Susan's like, no, guys, we should turn around and chase the stag no further. Like, something is wrong here. We should go. 
let's not do this. And they're like, no, we can't turn down a challenge. She's the only one that could have kept them in Narnia. If they had just listened to Susan, they'd still be kings and queens and happy and not forced in the eternal torment of becoming children again and ripped from this land that they ruled. Susan's the best. Everyone else is the worst. You should listen to Susan and then you'll be a dope king and queen forever as opposed to being torn from your home. So when she didn't get back in, when she was the only one that was actually trying to keep them there, my heart, my heart ripped out of my chest and just like went to the sky. I mean, I feel more bad for Susan now that I'm a doll and I see how much it was. Lucy's still young enough that she's allowed to be like not quite as like proper and girly and stuff. Susan is in a lot of these books. You can always see her kind of being like, oh, I want to do this. And people are like, no. And she's like, okay, great. I won't. I assume she's also trying to cope with trauma. Maybe she's trying to forget because she's coping with the trauma of being torn away from her home. Yeah, like also what's wrong with lipstick? Come on. Yeah, it's dope. So sexist. Like they're all really rude about her for no reason. And also at the end, they're told not to talk about it and forget about it. So at the very, very end, they go talk to the professor about it and explain this happened to him. And he's, you know, of course, the professor. So he's chill as hell about it. And he tells him, oh, but you won't get back there through the wardrobe again. Quote, you won't get into Narnia again by that route. Nor would the coats be much use now if you did, eh? What's that? Yes, of course you'll get back to Narnia again someday. Once a king of Narnia, always a king of Narnia. What about the queens? But don't go trying to use the same route twice. Indeed, don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. And don't talk too much about it, even among yourselves. And don't mention it to anyone else unless you find that they've had adventures of the same sort. What's that? Oh, how will you know? Oh, you'll know, all right. Odds things they say, even their looks will let the secret out. Keep your eyes open. Plus me, what do they teach them at these schools? So don't talk about it amongst yourselves. Don't talk about it with other people. Believe yourself slowly crazy inside and haunted by this memory and remember it forever. Yeah, that's really healthy. Cool, cool, cool. Of course she should remember it immediately. Be totally fine with the situation after Lion Jesus kicked them out of heaven. That's great. I have a lot of feelings about this. Yeah, the ending did not make me that angry, honestly. I was just like, yeah, Professor's a cool dude. So I did love these books as a kid, which I know it doesn't come off that way. But I think the fact that I grew up loving them is why I'm angrier with them as time goes on. Yeah, you do get a backstory for the professor in The Magician's Nephew. Yeah. Which is kind of like the prequel that tells you basically how Narnia came to be and stuff. I think that's technically the first one. That's the one that a lot of times you'll see the rearranged order nowadays where they'll have that as the first book. Yeah. Because some people, some of the sets sell them in chronological order as opposed to publication order. Yeah, I think it's that one and then The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is second. I feel like if this was a series I cared then, more about, we could fight about the correct order to read them in. And then The Horse and His Boy. Which yeah. Is a really weird one. Yeah. I'm into that, though. I really liked it because oh, it I felt like such a two. weird side quest. Oh, yeah. Here it is. They're in, like, order. The Horse and His Boy, which I liked. This could have just been, like, a book not about Narnia. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, it's so, like, irrelevant that that's the world it's in. But it gets you those book sales. Um, and then Prince Caspian, which I was never into as much, mostly because I felt really bad for him in this book. This is kind of like, even the happy ending is kind of a bummer for yeah. you. And then Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I think we can agree is the best one. It's the best one. It's so good. It's so good. And then The Silver Treader, I was also really not into. And then The Last Battle, which I love. I made my brother read it like two years ago. I, was I like, can't believe you love The Last Battle. It's so crazy. You hate children living alone in the woods, but you like this thing where they all die horribly and everything terrible happens. Remember when they have to run for like a really long time? <sighs> Nothing in that books makes sense, and I hate it. I know! That's what I loved about it. It was just, like, nonsense. It was just like, so you were definitely on drugs when you wrote this, white? Right? Like, <sighs> I hope so. 
If anyone needs me, I'm gonna be sadly drinking my mimosa while I live in this new world where Emily likes the last battle. That's so good. It's not a new world. I've always loved it. But to me, it's a new world. My when paradigm I mean, has changed. When I say it's so good, I definitely mean it's not good at all, but... It's a book that occurred once. I want to go back to the beginning and just say that... So, before they all go to Narnia and they're, like, in the house, which is actually... For some reason, I always think that that happens really fast that they go to Narnia. It's actually, it's like... It's really slow. Like four or five chapters in. Like, they spend a lot of time just in this house hiding from people and talking to the professor and stuff. But every time someone goes into the wardrobe, which is a lot, obviously, there's always, like, a very explicit sentence about how they did not close the door behind them, (laughs) because, of course, that would be crazy. Like, he really wants to make sure that this book does not mean that children are locking themselves in wardrobes. I think that's a reasonable safety concern to put in your book when you realize kids are going to be going into a lot more wardrobes, is just be like, I'm aware that this will probably inspire kids to go to wardrobes, I want some good wardrobe safety. Like this one, <laughs> that's the last one where they all find Narnia. Peter is like, quick, jump in here. Like, we have to hide from this tour group that's coming through. There's nowhere else. All four of them bundled inside it and sat there, panting in the dark. Peter held the door closed but did not shut it, for, of course, he remembered, as every sensible person does, that you should never shut yourself up in a wardrobe. <laughs> So the one where Lucy goes in the first time, looking into the insides, she saw several coats hanging out, mostly long fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur, which also, Lucy's a boss. (laughs) That's a great thing to have as your favorite smell and feel. What? The unknown sequel is actually Lucy grows up in a Cruella de Vil. Right? She immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got in among the coats and rubbed her face against them. Leaving the door open, of course, because she knew that it was very foolish to shut oneself into any wardrobe. Yes. Going into a magical land where you don't know anything and, like, befriending the local fawn and, like, living in this weird alternate reality? Totes cool. Shutting yourself in a wardrobe? Very irresponsible. There's another one, too. Like, there's, like, so many references. Um, there's one where she goes in who's just like, As soon as she reached it, she heard steps in the passage outside, and there was nothing to do but to jump into the wardrobe and hold the door closed behind her. She did not shut it properly, because she knew that it's very silly to shut oneself into a wardrobe, even if it is not a magic one. (laughs) There's so many warnings not to shut yourself into a wardrobe. It's like my favorite thing. I wonder if the editor added them afterwards. Like, this is during the publication process of them going... Mr. Lewis, I think we have a real wardrobe safety hazard about to happen, so would you mind adding a few helpful PSAs about wardrobe safety into your book? Thanks. The sense of humor in this is, like, very, very slight. Like, it's definitely not, like, a funny book or anything, so, like, things like that were delightful for me to find, but they weren't, like, necessarily supposed to be funny, I I gave a quarter of a chuckle at one point. Right? And I'm sure. I was like, the funny lines were always, I don't actually know if this was supposed to be funny. There's one where Edmund is talking to Lucy, actually about the White Witch, where he's like, who told you all that stuff about the White Witch? He asked. Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, said Lucy. You can't always believe what fawns say, said Edmund. <laughs> For some reason made me laugh. No, no. Which, like, Edmund has a good point. Right, I was like, I think he's right, but still. Like, well, like I think, yeah, Edmund is a reasonable point on this one. I was one. like, if anything in my, like, Greek and Roman history has told me, it's like, maybe you should not believe him. I also really loved this line. The witch is swirling out to go find the kids and kidnap them and, like, stop all of Aslan's plans to, like, have four humans on the throne. Make ready our sledge, ordered the witch, and use the harness without the bells. 
that's the end of the chapter like that's the cliffhanger that's amazing like that's not really as threatening as you think it is the fact that she was going around turning people into stone in this like sleigh drawn by reindeers with bells all over them is really funny to me oh man want to hear my random uh most dickish comment in here yeah you know, when Edmund is almost dying and Lucy goes over and puts some of her cordial in his face so he will be healed, she, like, wants to hang out for a second and see that her dying brother is fine, at which point Aslan comes over and goes, Daughter of Eve, said Aslan in a graver voice. Others are also at the point of death. Must more people die for Edmund? Way to be a dick. All she wants to do is know her brother is fine, but no, be like, you're letting people die. Thanks, Aslan. These I, are children! I remember as a kid always getting really stressed out because... They always really relied on her and that cordial of magic that will, like, heal anyone. This is very tiny. <laughs> How is there enough for everyone? This is going to run out at some point. Maybe you don't rely on that as your not dying method. It's crazy. I was always very stressed about that. Yeah. Like, you want to think she keeps a good eye on the levels, but it's hard to know. Especially when everyone's just running around getting stabbed all the time. Because they're like, Lucy has this. Lucy should go on cordial strike. I mean, I guess she could. I feel like they'd consider that being a traitor, though. Or not. Who knows? Who knows how they're really weird. Look, it's her cordial. She's under no obligation to help these ungrateful people that keep getting stabbed. Maybe they, maybe they should try not being stabbed. Have they considered that? If I remember anything from the rest of these books, it's that sword fights are a really big deal <laughs> in this world. They are. They love to fight all the swords. And they love to, like, as I remember it, just, like, walk around waving swords randomly a lot to, like, prove points or, like, emphasize things. Like, there's a character who's actually just known for, like, constantly waving his sword and, like, stabbing people with the foot with it. But he is also the best, Oh, so... he's great, but... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with him it's okay, and he would not want the cordial to heal it. Yeah. He's making but, a point. But still. It's good to know I can still be as full of as many feelings about this book as I was as a kid. They're just different feelings. They're angry feelings. Like, anger and... Hatred and love are right by each other, right? Like, they're related feelings. Yeah, it was weird because I wasn't sure what to expect because, like I said, I remember reading this book as a kid and liking it and also it being an intro into a series that I generally liked, but I didn't remember loving it and I kind of feel the same way where I'm just like, parts of this book, I was like, are you seriously, like, making me read this? Oh, I don't care about you. But parts of it was like, I mean, it's fairly well written yeah. and, like, kind of charming. The parts where he actually does use his imagination are kind of great. I don't know what this dude's brain was like, but, like, some of the stuff is nuts. <laughs> like, yeah, it has such a fun fairy tale feel to it. Like, it really has this lighthearted feel of someone sitting down to tell you a story. Like, it practically starts with Once Upon a Time. And I think it really works well for what they're doing with it, talking about a magical land. I think it's really in a great storytelling tradition. There also are some really good descriptions. One of my favorite things is when Aslan goes and takes all the statues and turns them back into animals, and it says... Quote, I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. Like, that's such a vivid way of describing what it looks like as, the, like, he blows on these statues and they're slowly, after a moment, there's this gold light that comes across them and they slowly start to turn back into animals. There's some really great vivid imagery that shows up in really weird places. Yeah. I want to talk about the the dedication at the beginning. Oh my god, I didn't even know there was dedication. I'm a monster um, as a human. I love it. And I've seen it before. Like, it sometimes kind of makes its way out there in different things. I wouldn't say it's, like, really famous, but it might be my favorite part of the book. I think it's beautiful. It says, To Lucy Barfield, My dear Lucy, 
I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> I know. I really love it. And I love that, like, it's so true about the, like, you hit that age where you're like, I'm too old for things. And then you come back around kind of when you're older and you're like, good things are good. Like, <laughs> And then you do a <laughs> podcast about them. <laughs> I know, right? Except that actually, in another way, annoys me more because I can only be annoyed about beautiful things is, you wrote this for a girl and you wrote all the girls not getting to fight? Yeah. Come I on. Mean, that might be why, like, Lucy is kind of, like, the feistiest and a little more, yeah. like, like, she's the one who finds the magical world. She's the hero, but also, come on, C.S. Lewis, give your goddaughter a sword. It's, like, a beautiful image of him, like, writing this book for a girl and mm -hmm. even just being, like, look, you might not read this now, but I hope that someday you understand that no, I wanted really nice. to build you this beautiful world. That's a really nice thing. I love it. That's really nice. So, yes, I think the dedication might be my favorite part of the book. Okay, that's fair. That is a very good dedication, even if he made Santa betray her. <laughs> Father Christmas, how dare you? Sorry. <laughs> you know it's Father Christmas because he wears a hood. Couldn't he be an ant, like a goat or a mongoose or something? I just... Every time there's human-ish people, it's weird because they make such a big deal of yeah, them Yeah, they're all humans. like, we've never seen a human before. And it's like, okay, but you've seen, like, humanoid type people. Like, there are, like dwarves and giants and like the witch who looks just like a human they give an explanation for like, the witch yeah they give like her bloodlines and i was like i don't care the point is you're so startled by seeing these kids like i've never seen anything like this before but santa even just the fact that christmas exists was weird it has the word christ in the name <laughs> like aslan giving them the gifts would have made more sense yeah i agree also when it comes to gift giving tolkien did it better with galadriel so Suck it, C.S. Lewis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have no, I have no opinion on that. <laughs> the Rings. I read it up. like a really long time ago, and never again. What? It's very long. Yeah, there's a lot of long descriptions. Yes, and there's not many girls in that either. But it's so good. It was fine. I like the movies better. It's one of the few exceptions to the rule. Just gonna sit here and drink my mimosa. Podcasts aren't a place for violence. Except for I never saw the two towers. <laughs> you saw the first one and the third one, but not. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I have the extended editions in the other room. It's nice no. that you think you'll be leaving here at any point in the next fourteen hours. I tried to watch the extended edition of the first one with my brother, who was really excited when it's he so had it. It's so much better than the theatrical version. And we got twenty minutes in, and they were still explaining what a Hobbit was, and I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I already know what a hobbit is. The books are best described, as, as well as the movies, as meandering. And I enjoy that. I'm not rereading those. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I did read them when I was a kid. Uh, I didn't. I read them in high school. I read them in junior high, probably. My copy of Fellowship of the Ring looks like it's been murdered. Like, it's gone through a, a paper shredder, basically, at this point. It's gone through so many backpacks. It was always just my, like, leave it in my bag, because I might want to read this today. Speaking of covers... <laughs> Oh, God. I was going to say that. I don't... The library had the weirdest edition of this. I've never seen it before. I yeah, there's so many editions of this book. That has, like, that fancy, really thick, really white paper that's kind of silky. I don't care for it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, I grew up in the 90s, so I had that, the additions were, like, each one was a solid color, and it had the kind of, like, pencil drawings. That the were, proper like, box color. set, yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was purple. The Magician's mm-hmm. Nephew was green. Mm-hmm. Horse's Boy was brown. Uh, the Last Battle was kind of like a burnt umber. I don't remember what the other three were. <laughs> no, I always read the super, like, old hardbacks in the library as a kid. Right. But those had in them, like, pencil drawings, like, illustrations, that were, like, charming and cute and, like, small, like, not very detailed. And this edition that the library has has those same drawings, but they've been, like, colorized, and yeah. it makes them look very bad. The like, e-bo- the e-cop book I have of it has that as well, and it's not great. Like, they go from being, like, a charming little sketch that someone did to being, like, this is a bad picture. Yeah, <laughs> like, the color took it from nice sketch to bad drawing real fast. Yeah, it's really weird, because like, I'm like, I recognize that these are the same, but they don't look good. I don't know if I have anything else to rant about. <laughs> you don't want to rant about Santa again? I just don't understand why he's there. I'm now currently really quickly trying to rate this in my head, sorting through, like, an entire lifetime of feelings associated with this book. It's also, like, I almost, I apologize for talking so much about the other books in the series, but it's so hard when you've read them all to separate them. It just, I can't. Like, it's all one big chunk. I feel like, like, on one hand, I'm like, I'm sorry we talked so much, but I also feel like we did not talk enough about... The magician's nephew, or... I think speaks well to sort of how he created a really cohesive series, where even though every book really stands up individually, like the fact that we started with not necessarily this book, I think it speaks well for what a cohesive series he created. Each one can kind of stand on its own, other than The Last Battle, let's be real. Once you've read them all, they all become so intrinsically necessary to the others. I think I would go ahead and rate this probably like a five. It seems low in a lot of ways. But the thing was, it didn't really pull me in. There wasn't, like, a lot. And I definitely would probably recommend it for, like, especially younger readers as, like, it's well-written. It is a good introduction to both classics and kind of, like, period, like, written in a older tone and also, like, easy to slip into fantasy world. So I don't think it's something that, like, yeah, if you have someone who's, like, you know, like a five or six year old even that you wanted to read out loud this to, like this would be great. I don't know. I feel like if you didn't read this as a child and had the like nostalgia, I would not be like, read this. It's a great book. You're gonna love it. Yeah, I think this definitely sort of a certain extent relies on either you reading this in conjunction with reading it to a child or like having a nostalgia factor because I think some of the other ones probably hold up better than this one. But this one's yeah, I don't know how it would appeal to someone that maybe hasn't had any experience with it i think i'm gonna give it a 5.5 give it a five and a half i can't um, believe you're rating it higher than me <laughs> i know at the end of the day i think this book is the one that really helped make me really appreciate the idea of magic it gave that mystery to the world where you could open a wardrobe and there could be another world in there and i think that's a really valuable thing and i think all of my hatred is in fact coming from a place of love so <laughs> It's complicated feelings. Um, But yeah, I think a 5.5, like it's a fun, light sort of fairy story with a lot of brutal killing and Santa in it. But I think, yeah, like it's it's a nice, well-done tale. And it really, I think, opens the world to the rest of the Narnia books, which are sort of a different adventure. So I don't know. I think it has a really good magical adventure spirit that I will give it points for. Just not for the trauma these poor child children have suffered through. Why was that never a book? 
I would say five because I'd say this is good for a child, not a great read for an adult. Yeah. Uh, I really want to go back now and read the other ones, but I'm also now afraid that they're going to be worse than I remember. <laughs> I'm going to be heartbroken if it turns out that Voyage of the Dawn Dreamer is not a good book. Oh, Did God. that one get made into a movie? No, they signed the contract to do it and they were going to do it, but it didn't end up happening. What I don't know fuck? if it might still, but yeah, that's my one worry, especially because I could see Eustace being the worst if he's I'm reading as an adult. He's supposed to be the worst, but I could see it in a way that's less entertaining to me than it was as a child. Right. Anyway, different anyway. topic for a different day. But... Anyway, so that was us talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We will be back in two weeks. And we'll be talking about another book, and that book is The Ear, The no. Eye, and The Arm. It's The Eye, The Ear, and The Arm. It's another book with, did you realize that these both have like I'm three... holding it up right now. It starts with The Ear. It's oh, okay. The Ear, The Eye, and The Arm. I've been saying it wrong all these years. I you know. These both have like three nouns as Apparently. their title. I was just like, oh, that's weird. But we will be back in two weeks to talk about that. Hope you come back and join us on a much more exciting book adventure. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at throwbackbookstack at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, so come say hi. Come tell me that I am wrong about this book. Or better yet, come tell me I'm right about this book and that you too hate The Last Battle and love Susan. Join me. Uh, we're at throwbackbspod, so feel free to join me and make me feel less lonely on the internet. Our music is Heartbreaker by Jazar uh, at betterwithmusic.com. I think that's everything, so I hope I will see you all back in two weeks. God, fuck this book. (laughs) Spoilers, Kelly! (laughs) Alright, let's begin.